I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Lauren Gabrielson, which is a women's wear brand that creates elevated essentials for the modern women's wardrobe. The collection is entirely designed and produced in Brooklyn, New York. The Lauren Gabrielson woman values quality, versatile pieces that she can wear every day that are customized to her body, her time, and her style. And by the way, I have two Lauren Gabrielson headbands, which I wear all the time, and you can see in my photos on my events page because I wear them everywhere, and they're amazing, and actually my six-year-old daughter steals mine all the time. So anyway... LaurenGabrielson.com. I am so excited to be interviewing Will Schwabe, who is the New York Times bestselling author of The End of Your Life Book Club and Books for Living, Some Thoughts on Reading, Reflecting, and Embracing Life. He wrote his first book, Send, Why People Email So Badly and How to Do It Better, with David Shipley. The former editor-in-chief of Hyperion Books, Will founded Cookster in 2008, which is now part of Macmillan Publishers, where he currently works as EVP of Editorial Development and Content Innovation. Will is the host of podcast, but that's another story with Will Schwalbe, originally from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a graduate of Yale University. He currently lives with his husband in New York City. Welcome, Will. Thanks so much for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books. Thank you, Zibby. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So, Books for a Living. Please tell listeners what this book is about and what inspired you to write it. So, Books for a Living is about 26 books that I read over the course of my entire life that taught me something or showed me something or gave me an insight to help me live life in a more purposeful, meaningful way. And one of the things I really wanted to do with Books for Living is not put together a kind of canon of the greatest books that everybody must read, but show the way that really any kind of book can be a book for living if it's the book you need to read at the time it finds you. And I love how you started with the story of sitting next to a Navy SEAL on an airplane and swapping books. And tell me that story. Oh, yeah. Actually, he was a West Point cadet. Oh, I'm sorry. West Point cadet. <laughs> a West sorry, Point cadet. Sorry, sorry. And we were, it was funny, we were on a plane together. Actually, there's a little bit of backstory, which I don't think I included in the book, which was this was in olden days before electronic tickets. So we had been bumped from a previous flight and they said, you have to take the next flight and we're going to put you on first class, but we only have one ticket stock left. So the two of you have to stay together. You have to spend all your time together in the airport and you have to spend all your time together in the lounge and you can't leave each other's side. So I had an enormous amount of time (laughs) in which to chat with this West Point cadet. And it turned out he was really interested in books and he wound up asking me for, as as a gift to him, a list of books that I thought he should read to help him in life. And in return, he gave me his West Point Cadet baseball cap, which I still have to this day. Oh, that's so nice. Oh my gosh. You had so many amazing passages in this book about reading, and I am an avid reader and loved hearing all the things you had to say. One of them, you said, in one of them you said, I'm not the same reader when I finish a book as I was when I started. Brains are a tangle of pathways, and reading creates new ones. Every book changes your life. So I like to ask, how is this book changing mine? So talk to me about this approach to reading. Well, it's really taking up the ancient Greek philosophical statement, you can never step in the same river twice. And what does that mean? It means the river's different, of course, because it's flowing by you, but you're different. The, The person who steps again in the river is a different person from the person who stepped in the river before. And I try to carry that philosophy throughout all my life and just think, how are things changing me? But, but books are like a controlled change experiment. And you can really think on page one, 
What kinds of things do I believe? Who am I? What do I think about the topic of this book? What do I think about characters like the ones I'm just about to encounter if it's a novel? And then halfway through, you say to yourself, has my opinion changed? Do I see this person differently? Do I see people differently? What kinds of insights have I gained? And what else has happened to me in life over the last week, days, hours, whatever it is that has changed how I'm approaching this book? And I really believe that reading is growing. Reading is living. And, and there was something my mother would never say to us when we were growing up. And she would never say, why don't you put down that book and do something? Because reading is doing something. It's, it's expanding your consciousness. And that's kind of what I meant about I'm not the same reader at the end of a book as I was at the beginning. I'm not even the same reader on page two as I was on page one. I love that. Recently, I reread a book that I had read 20 years ago, and I feel like that was also thinking about how much, as a reader, I've changed, but the book stays the same, but you read it in a whole new way from a different point of view in your own life. You really do, and, and I think part of that is the experiences you bring, but part of it is age. Mm-hmm. There's, as you know, because you've read books for a living, I'm obsessed with this writer, Lin Yu Tang, yes. and I quote him throughout, and a Chinese writer who published in the 1930s a book called The Importance of Living. But he has a passage that I just love where he says, when you read a book as a young person, it's like seeing the moon through a keyhole. And when you read a book as a middle-aged person, it's like seeing the moon through a crack in the door. But when you read a book as an older person, it's like seeing the moon when you're standing out on a terrace with nothing between you and what you're looking at. That just gave me goosebumps. I love that. Oh my gosh, that's really beautiful. You also talk in your book about how reading makes you feel less alone, which is something you do by yourself. You said one of the few things you do alone that can make you feel less alone, it's a solitary activity that connects you to others. And you point out in the book why this is so important in today's hyper-connected world, to feel connected through words. So tell me more about that. Well, I think it's one of the things that makes you feel less alone. And I'll I'll go into that a couple, because I meant a couple of different things by that. But I also am on a little bit of a crusade to rebrand reading. And I have this thing, I want to call reading radical listening. Love it. Because I really think that now more than ever, we need to listen to one another. All you need to do is turn on cable news any night, any channel, and you will hear a bunch of people who are not listening to each other. There's a, a quote that I love, which is, and it was not meant as a compliment, was the opposite of, list, of talking is not listening. It's waiting for your turn to talk. And I think that's how a lot of people approach listening. It's just simply waiting for their turn to talk. Whereas books can be radical listening. And what I mean by radical listening is the person put down the words on the page. You have no choice if you're going to read it but to hear them out, hear their argument. Sure, you could skip ahead and hop around, but basically you're going to have to engage with what they want you to hear. You can argue with them. It's not going to change the words on the page. You can scream at them. not going to change the words on the page. You can throw the book across the room. Still not going to change the words on the page. So you kind of have to put aside your ego, your prejudices, your thoughts enough when you read to take in what someone else has to say. And that's a powerful thing in our, in our lives today because we don't always do it when we're not reading. In fact, we rarely do it. So interesting. 
I'm going to join your crusade. Good. If you need someone to carry I part would, of that banner on your march, <laughs> I, I, I will pick up a corner. <laughs> I would love mom, Mom's Don't Have Time to Read Books, Radical Listening Crusade. Radical Listening Crusade. I love that. That's so nice. I wonder if there could be a study of some sort of, like, do narcissists read less? Or is there a personality type? Or, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, is I there a personality? People who feel compelled to talk or... Do they approach reading in a different way? Never. Yes, I actually think you know if we if we wanted anecdotal evidence, <laughs> I would say that our president provides <laughs> that. Not a big reader, big talker, and I'll just leave it at that. Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> in the book, you mentioned that there's some questions we should be asking each other more, such as what are you reading and. Would you like, would you care for a nap? <laughs> <laughs> yes, those are my, my two favorite questions, or two of my favorite questions. Why I think we should ask people, what are you reading more, is because it's, it's a wonderful way of saying to someone, I want to know more about who you are, but not in a very intrusive way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are a lot of reasons for not accosting each other with questions that we may think are, are perfectly innocent in one sense, but, but can be judged offensive in another. A simple question like, where are you from, can take on a very hostile or minimizing tone in certain circumstances. It's not, it's not always a great question to ask. In fact, often it isn't. But what are you reading is a terrific question. Or are you a reader? And if so, what are you reading? And what's amazing is how Often, I think, in life, we judge people, and we assume things about them, and and we assume, for example, oh, that person's not a reader. Well, how do we know? And it's a marvelous question, and I love asking it because I'm almost always surprised. And it connects me to my tribe, and there there are people, and they say, yes, I'm so glad you asked that, and I'm reading this or that, or no, I haven't had much time recently for this, that, but when I was a kid, I loved to read Harry Potter, or no, I'm not, but, you know, my dad is a huge reader, or... You know, no shame in it. No, not really a reader. And then I can say, seen any good movies lately? Are you a sports fan? I mean, it's just going on to someone's interests um, and trying to find ways to connect. But when you find a reader, it's, it's really powerful. And, and there's a story that I love that, that happened to me, which is I was talking to someone who was writing an article on books and reading, and she was interviewing me. And I mentioned this question, this power of what are you reading? And I said, I gave her a challenge. I said, when you leave the restaurant today, how are you getting home? And she said, I'm taking a taxi. And I said to her, ask the taxi driver, what are you reading? Okay. Goes off in the taxi. She calls me later. She said, you can't, can't believe what happened. What happened? I said to the taxi driver, what are you reading? And she told me he was so overcome with emotion that he almost had to pull over. And he said that he was a professor, I think it was from Greece, and he'd been driving a cab to make it in New York, and no one ever asked him what he was reading. They just made assumptions about him. Oh, he's a taxi driver. They asked him, where's the best Greek food, or where are you from, which he got super tired of. And he was reading all sorts of things, and and he was just delighted to talk books with her. And in fact, she wound up writing that, and it became one of those little stories in Metropolitan Diary in the New York Times. So to me, that's the power of what are you reading. I love that. And the power of napping, you also mentioned. And, and the power of napping. <laughs> and you point out, too, that we put our computers to sleep, and yet we don't put ourselves to sleep. And that they get the breaks, but we don't, and the irony of that. Exactly, is exactly. We're on all the time, but we let our computers doze. Napping's marvelous, and, and I had real fun writing about 
the joy that certain readers like myself get from napping and reading and reading and napping and napping and reading and just spending a whole day kind of groggily waking up, reading a chapter, going back to sleep, waking up, reading another chapter. And what's marvelous about that is your subconscious gets to work and you find yourself inserted into the books you're reading. And when you dream, you dream yourself with those characters or in those settings, you're on the moors with Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights. It's so fun. So I, I highly, I'm a huge napping fan, but the napping <laughs> reading combo can't be beat. That's awesome. I love that. You wrote really beautifully about your relationship with the librarian at your boarding school, Miss Locke, and how she perhaps intentionally, perhaps not, affected the whole trajectory of your life and how you felt accepted at the time. Tell me a little more about your relationship with her and what she did that was so great. So, yes, I was incredibly lucky. I went to an Episcopal boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire, and I, I generally really liked it. In fact, I loved it, and I was a pretty happy, outgoing kid, but it was the late 70s, and very soon I realized, I had realized all along that I was gay, but I, I started to admit it to myself. And the news was just filled with horrible things at that time. That was Anita Bryant's crusade against gay people. Um, that was when Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone were shot to death and the person who assassinated them was sentenced to only months in prison on what was called the Twinkie defense. He said he'd had so many Twinkies to eat that he had too much sugar in his body. And at my boarding school of 500 kids and 100 faculty members, there was no out gay student or faculty member and never had been. So it was happy on one sense and incredibly isolating on the other. And when I was feeling low or just in need of, of some solitude, I would go into the library almost always the same time in the afternoons. And there I would find Miss Locke, who was the school librarian, who was a fantastic figure. And she would make these special brownies that she had. And one day I walked, walked in and Miss Locke wasn't there, and the library cart was where it always was in front of her desk. And I noticed that there was a book. And I, I sort of knew she knew when I usually came in, and I suspected that book was for me. So I read that book, and, and she would leave various books for me, and, and one of them was Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. And this is a book about a young man named David who goes to Paris and falls in love with a young man named Giovanni. And it's a very dark book. Things do not end well. But there are these glorious scenes that show two men in love as they're walking down the Champs-Élysées, throwing strawberries, and I think it was cherries, cherries in each other's mouths. And it really showed me a vision of a life that I had not been able to imagine my, for myself, a life that could be lived without dread. And so I don't quite say that book saved my life because I think that's overdramatic, but it saved the life I have. It, it showed me a vision of a life that I could live. And I always have this intense gratitude for Miss Locke. And as I write in Books for Living, I, I did go back at reunions and tell her how much she meant to me and what she'd done for me, but I don't think I did it enough or to uh, the extent that I should have. So in some ways, I really wanted to put that chapter in this book as a Thank you to Miss Locke. Did she read it? Do you know? No, she's long, she had been long dead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. She died of ALS. Um, oh, gosh. And she left, what a legacy. I mean, when I meet other people who went to my school, and it was co-ed, girls and boys, now women and men, one of the things that oh, Miss Locke, they're like, she had such an impact on so many people. So it's also 
not just a thank you to her, but it's kind of a love letter to school librarians. That's so nice. Oh my gosh. You wrote in Books for a Living about your experience answering phones at a at the Gay crisis, men's health crisis. Gay men's health crisis during the beginning of the whole AIDS epidemic. And just talk to me about that. I had not read anybody's account of sort of that particular, like your particular point of view was so interesting that you, well, anyway, just talk, tell me about it. It was a pretty awful time. I mean, I, I, when I look back now, I knew how awful it was when we were going through it. I, I actually had no illusions about that, but I, I'm just still stunned about how unprecedentedly awful it was. And so in the early 80s, when AIDS started to hit, and the first time I read about it, there was a small number of men, gay men affected, it was in the New York Times. Within a couple of years, the number still was 1,112 and counting, according to the famous Larry Kramer article in the New York Native, which for a gay man living in New York was a staggering number, but, but for the rest of the country really didn't care. Um, it was happening to gay men, and who cared? But I, I felt deeply the need to do something. I also had had a boyfriend who, it became clear to me, had died of AIDS. And somewhat out of altruism, but more just to stave off panic, because there was no test for AIDS. No one knew how co- what caused it. No HIV hadn't been discovered. Um, actually, at first, it wasn't even called AIDS. It was called gay-related immune deficiency, I think, GRID, GRID. And so I started working at the hotline in the just-founded GMHC. We were working out of a single room in a townhouse in Chelsea. I would go to the hotline and spend hours there. Um, I, was, I was still in college at the time. This was on summer breaks or... or vacations. And while at college, I worked in AIDS Project New Haven doing the hotline and just received one unimaginably horrible call after another. And they were literally calls like, my lover is in bed. He's dead. I'm lying next to him. I cannot get any funeral home to come and take his body away. And I would have a list of, well, I I have a a couple funeral homes. You can try this one. You can try that one. Good luck. People being thrown out of their homes, people losing their jobs, and just people in despair, maybe because of someone they lost, maybe because they had just been diagnosed, or this group who had worried themselves sick, many with very good reason. And it was pretty shattering to sort of sit there and take call after call after call after call. And we had some information but not much. And that was a very formative experience in my life. It was, as someone else described it, like we were at war and everybody around us was at peace. And you would would then leave the Chelsea townhouse and get on the subway and go somewhere else where there was a party or a show and, and you would come from a battle zone and these people didn't even know it existed. And... The city wasn't doing anything. The president of the country, years into AIDS, had never said the word AIDS. And we later found out when he did talk about it, it was only to laugh about it in private. And so, yeah, it was was a horror. And and one of the things that I, I wanted to put this down for lots of reasons, one of them was, I think, when people who didn't live through it look back on it, they don't realize the span of time. They don't realize the decade that we lived with friends dying left and right while nobody knew anything. 
ACT UP came later, antiretrovirals came later, but there was almost a decade of, of living in this environment and also living as a young man. I was right out of college. I was in college, really believing with fairly decent evidence that it was likely I wouldn't live to 30. I, one other thing I want to say about that is, and, I, and this is the context I wrote in Books for Living about it, is a lot has been said quite rightly about the writers that we lost. And we lost so many great writers to AIDS. But I wanted to talk about the readers we lost because we lost hundreds of thousands of readers. And so when we read, I, I feel like I'm not just reading for myself, I'm reading for them. I'm reading for people who aren't here to read anymore. I could sit here and listen to you all day. You are like, I see why your books are so, you are the consummate storyteller. Every question is like a well-crafted, <laughs> no, it's true. I'm like, what can I ask you next? Oh, well, uh, yes, it's, uh, my storytelling. <laughs> I think there are times when people at dinner parties are like, uh, can we have a little time out no, from the stories, Oh, please? my gosh, no, come to my dinner parties. <laughs> I love it. Well, tell me a little more now about the writing side. You, cause, because Books for Living it's really a memoir. You talk about all these important things in your life and your loss of your friend David Bear, which you wrote about so beautifully, and all these other milestones and experiences, and yet you, the lens through which you paint, wrote it was, was books that conceivably can help other people. Yeah. So tell me about, and your first book, of course, was amazing, The End of Your Life Book Club, where you share books with your mother as she's dying. Talk to me about these books, this book in particular, and what made you write it in this way and like your whole writing process? And well, it's so funny. So you really picked up on, on exactly what I wanted to do, but Books for Living is a bit of a fake out. <laughs> um, because The End of Your Life Book Club, about the books I read with my mom when yeah. she was dying of pancreatic cancer, is really about celebrating life and living each day with joy and purpose, even though she was dying. And, and Books for Living is is a memoir. Mm-hmm. It's, it is disguised. But I figured I'm glad, it out. I, well, you figured it out. <laughs> it's a memoir. And it is a memoir about living each day more purposefully and with more meaning as a tribute to those we've loved who aren't here to live anymore. But I also wanted to inspire other people to do their own books for living and sort of put it forward as a way of understanding your life and to remember your life through the books you read that gave you insight at the moments you needed the most. And to, to say to people, it can be any kind of a book. It can be a mystery novel. I write about the girl on the train. It can be a children's book. I write about Stuart Little. It can be a cookbook. I write about A Taste of Country Cooking by Edna Lewis. It just whatever books they are, but not just as a kind of log but really about a way of conjuring your whole life. And the way books, getting back to what we talked about earlier, connect you to people, but they connect you to people also who are no longer here. When you read a book that you know someone loved who's dead, it brings them back. Or when you read a book that you think a friend who's no longer here might have liked, or a parent, or or sibling, or whoever you've lost, it allows you to be in a kind of dialogue with them. So when I was writing, I found the writing really joyful because it allowed me to bring back all these friends. And it, it allowed me to bring back, when I was writing about the little prince, Lee Harkins, who had been a pal in high school, who had died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But then it literally connected me to her because I thought, like, this is crazy. I haven't called her mother in, in, since she died since the memorial service. So 40 years later, I'm on the phone with Lee's mother, who became a hospital chaplain. And the little prince brought back Lee and led me to Lee's mom. And so the writing 
was so much fun. It was, it was what books do I remember? What books influenced me? And what books did I just read that, that conjure something from my life that I want to write about? And now this book is that book for other people. It's yes. like a whole circle. You know? whole, oh, thank you. That's what I really hoped is that Books for Living will do that. Yeah. Sort of get people to say, who haven't I spoke to or what haven't I thought about or, or what, what kind of context can I place on my life? And so the writing process itself, where do you like to write? How long do, do you write right here? Do you, how, long does you, how long did the book take you to write? So I write, so here we are in my yes, home. Yes. Thank you for coming to visit. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I write at the dining table. We're looking at my laptop, which Beautiful. is on the dining table. So clean. Uh, yes, very, very <laughs> pristine. And I need 24 solid hours to write. I cannot write. I have a full-time job. I cannot write an hour before I go to work. So I write all weekend, every weekend. And I need every second of it because I behave kind of like a crazy person. I'm like in The Shining, Jack Nicholson. I don't bathe. I don't shave. I sit there and just hour after hour after hour doing what any writer does, dawdling, going into internet rabbit holes, following weird Twitter feuds, (laughs) getting up, walking around. So I will write without stop for four hours in a 24-hour period, but I don't know what four hours they are. So I have to clear all the decks. And my husband goes nuts because I can't do anything when I'm writing. And he'll come back from doing errands and this and that, and he'll say, like, you couldn't put the coffee mug in the sink? <laughs> like, you couldn't get up from... And, and as you see, it's not a big apartment. It's not very far from the dining table to the sink. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> I could not. <laughs> so that's my writing process. And then how long it took me, I tried to come up with the first draft somewhere between one and two years and then work on it for another year. So it's about three years. Wow. Do you have plans for more books? I'm writing one right now, and I'm, I'm loving it. it it's a... All I'll say about it is it's about a 40-year friendship with someone totally different from me. Oh, oh my gosh, can't wait to read that. (laughs) And so you have a full-time job. You also have a podcast. Yes. Tell me about, and Cookster, which you started. So tell me a little about the rest of your life. So I kind of grew, I started as a journalist where I was a journalist in Asia for a couple of years, then grew up in publishing, wound up as editor-in-chief first of William Morrow Book Publishers and then of Hyperion Books. Quit to start a cooking website called cookster.com, still thriving. Did that for six years and sold it to Macmillan. So where I work now is Macmillan and they own it. So I run that and I acquire and edit all different kinds of books. So I edited Melinda Gates' most recent book, The Moment of Lift. And I also, for Macmillan, do a podcast that I love. It's so much fun. It's called But That's Another Story. And I interview people I admire, mostly writers, but not exclusively writers, about a book that changed their life and what was happening in their life and and how they find that book and how did they change. And you don't have to know anything about them and you don't have to have read their book. It's about, you know, my topic, the way books find people when they need them most and change them. And I've had Jodie Foster on and Melinda Gates and Min Jin Lee and wonderful writer Monique Chung, who has a new book out called The Sweetest Fruits. And I'm just having a blast. You can just send all those people to me. <laughs> you, you could just be like, your next stop. And we'll do a circuit. We'll do uh, absolutely. So what advice do you have to aspiring authors? Well, I'll give... Advice to aspire, well, I'll, I'll, two sets of advice. I'll, I'll start with memoirists. Okay. Which is, I really believe there's a lot of terrible advice about memoir out there. What's most important about memoir is that it's you. It's true to you. If you are 
a kind of person who always sees the best in everybody and, and write a memoir that reflects that. You don't have to be scathing to write a memoir. If you're a scathing person, do that. But it needs to be true to your voice, your core, who you are, not adhere to some artificial notion of what a memoir is. And in fact, one of the reasons that I really wanted to write The End of Your Life Book Club about my mother is I love my mother and she was an incredibly, I thought, admirable woman and I wanted to present her life to the world and show how I felt about her and what she taught me through the books we read and the way she lived her life. And a lot of people had terrible mothers and difficult childhoods and a lot of trauma, and that's their truth, and they need to write that, and those make very powerful books. But a lot of people didn't. And you can write about whatever it is as long as it's true to you. I do think that with writing... People get way ahead of themselves. They think about agents and publishers and this and that. Write the best book you possibly can. Just do the best book you possibly can and then worry about that. And that's tough advice and it's easy to get ahead of yourself. But to me, it's really as simple as that. And that applies whether it's fiction or memoir or essays, whatever it is. It it needs to be there on the page. Did you have a follow-up? You said you would only talk about memoir. Do you have advice to other types of authors, or was there something else? I mean, I think this is my advice to all authors. Mm -hmm. There's a question, and you're not going to be surprised what question I like to ask any author, and that is, what are you reading? Read, 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 read. You cannot be a writer without reading. I, I just believe that to the depths of my soul. And you don't have to read in your genre. You can read anything you like, but you have to read. Easy enough. (laughs) Great. Check. Okay. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Your stories, your books, your advice, all of it is amazing. And thank you for sharing it and your love of reading. And I can't wait to hear what other people I pass in the course of my day-to-day are reading, maybe people I wouldn't have thought to ask. Oh, great. I want to hear it, too. So when you find out, let me know. That's how I've gotten some of my very best book recommendations. Oh, I just have to add one other other thing, the what are you reading thing. It will not surprise anybody that there is... There are two groups of people who it is very important to ask this question of particularly. People who work in indie bookstores and librarians. And I have discovered a huge percentage of my favorite books by simply going into, we live in New York City, I go into Three Lives Bookstore and I ask them, what are you reading? And all the booksellers tell me and I choose the best ones and they've given me so much joy. So yes, ask everybody everywhere, but I love to go into indie bookstores and libraries and ask that question. Excellent. Thanks, Thanks, Ibby. Thank you. Thanks again to my sponsor, Lauren Gabrielson, the women's wear brand that creates elevated essentials for the modern women's wardrobe, laurengabrielson.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.